Our reading this morning is 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you thanks for Paul and for this letter to the Thessalonians And I pray that you would speak to us now through these words. Speak into our hearts to inspire and to teach and to encourage and to challenge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite TV programs, I don't know if you've seen it, is Castle. Anyone seen Castle? No one's seen Castle. (sighs) It's very... You show it's not called Castle. Sorry. Has anyone seen Castle? No? It's about a mystery writer called Rick Castle who teams up with some New York detectives and they solve murders together. And uh, series six ends with a cliffhanger. We see his car burning in a ditch with Castle nowhere to be found. And then the, the, the music starts and it's the end of the series. You've got to wait a whole year for series seven which picks up the story two months later. He's been found, but we've no idea what's happened in between the end of Series 6 and the end of Series 7. And it takes, of course, the whole Series 7 to work out what happened to him in those two months. And uh, Paul's letters are a little bit like that. Thessalonians, Series 1, if you like, ends with Paul giving the Thessalonian Christians some final instructions. And then we don't know what happened between that letter um, arriving and then the start of this letter, Thessalonians series 2, a few months later. We can make a decent guess, though, as that Bible Project video showed. 
there's been some encouragement. They're doing all right. But Paul is also worried because there are some challenges that they're facing. Some challenges from outside the church family and some challenges from inside. At first, persecutions and trials. People are opposing them and their life is, is, well, it's a bit rubbish, to put it mildly. Then in chapter 2, we have false teachers. People claiming that they've had another letter from Paul when they haven't, that Jesus has already returned and that they've missed out. And then in chapter 3, we have idlers and troublemakers, people refusing to work either on their faith or for a living. So 2 Thessalonians is Paul's attempt to deal with those issues. But first, though, he sets the scene, as he does in all of his letters. He begins with a strong statement of who they are in verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are children of God, and they belong to the Lord Jesus. It's so easy to skip. I mean, Paul's letters all begin basically the same way. So it's, it's easy to skip over that bit, but it's really important. That is how he starts every single one of his letters with who we are. You see, learning our identity and knowing who we are is really important. And Paul locates that identity not within us, but in Jesus. Who we truly are, it's not about expressing yourself. I get really cross with the cricketers. You know, if you follow the cricket, the cricketers are always being told to express themselves. I'm like, no, just play some cricket. Uh, Don't get beaten 3-0 by the Aussies. But at least they won the World Cup by expressing themselves. Anyway, I'll shut up about the cricket. Who we truly are can't be found within because our hearts can't be trusted. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all else. It deceives in a clever way with half-truths. If we want to know the truth about who we are, Paul begins his letters with it. We are children of our Heavenly Father, and we belong to Jesus. That is who we are. So let's not skip over the opening verses too quickly. Now, my Uncle Trevor, he has a bit of a chili factory going on in their house. He has uh, an entire windowsill of chili plants, and he heard that Jess and I have been trying to grow a chili plant from seeds and failing miserably every single time. Apparently, it is quite hard, but we are also useless at doing green things, ironically. So he very kindly gave us one of his chili plants, and we kept it fed with, you have to put tomorite, is that a thing? Something like that on it, and water. And it didn't die, which is quite a good thing for Jessamy. The plant didn't die, but neither did it bear any fruit, apart from one chili, which wasn't hot at all. So it was a bit useless, and we thought, oh, never mind. Then we happened to go on holiday, and so it wasn't watered for a week, and it just so happened that that week was extremely sunny. And it turns out that chili plants need to be stressed in order to produce fruit, particularly hot fruit. I was actually reading something on Gardener's World's website. There's a, yeah, yeah, get me, get me. I truly am middle-aged at last. According to Gardener's World's website, there's a guy called Matt who grows some of the hottest chilies in the UK, and he damages his plants deliberately. He stresses them out by not watering them and not feeding them, and apparently he even shouts at them. That's kind of, I guess, the opposite of what King Charles used to do. I don't know if he still talks to his plants. Because if you, if you stress the plant too much, you kill it. But if you get it right, 
you end up with a crop of really good hot chilies. Now, unfortunately, Christians are like chili plants. When things are easy, we don't grow. We don't produce much fruit. We might not die, but we don't grow. When we face challenges, difficulties, and persecution, that's when we really start to grow and bear fruit that lasts. Like in his first letter, Paul says to the Thessalonians that he's thankful to God for them. We ought always, he says in verse 3, to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. This is something I'm trying to grow in myself. One of my strengths is being able to see how something could improve, which is extremely useful, but it can also make me overly critical and dissatisfied. So I'm learning, or trying to learn anyway, to be more like Paul and begin with saying thank you and identifying the things that I need to say thank you to God for first before moving on, to see the value and the good in something before looking and thinking about how it could be better. And Paul gives thanks for two things. He gives, you, he gives thanks because their faith is growing more and more, and because the love all of you have for one another is increasing. The word growing there is growing like a plant. It's that sort of organic growth, putting down roots, bearing fruit. You see, faith is not something you have or don't have. It's something that grows and sadly sometimes shrinks. I get annoyed when people say, I don't have faith or I wish I had your faith. Everyone has faith in something. The question is, what is your faith in and is it growing? Is your faith growing? Is it, in fact, is it growing like theirs was more and more? Or is it like our chili plant was, having the appearance of being healthy, but not actually bearing any fruit? Faith is not something you have, it is something you grow. Is yours growing? If you don't think it is, and you'd like it to, please come and talk to me, or someone else. Two of my favorite things in the world, apart from Jesus and Jess, and possibly pizza, are seeing people become disciples for the first time and seeing people grow as disciples of Jesus. I love it. It's fantastic. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So please, if you want to grow in your faith, come and talk to me. Or if you don't want to talk to me, talk to someone else and see if we can help you grow in your faith. Second, this love is increasing. The word there is it's about spreading and dispersing, sort of scattering this was a pretty random group of people in Thessalonica. There were slaves in the church all the way up to high society people. And they were learning what it meant to live and love together. They weren't only loving the people like them. They were loving everyone in the church family. They were spreading that love around. And all of that was happening, verse 4, in the face of persecutions and trials. They were being opposed because of their faith, because of their way of life, their different values. And they were facing the ordinary struggles of life. Some of them couldn't afford to eat. It wasn't easy for them, but they were enduring. They were facing it with perseverance and faith. And that's why Paul boasts about them. He's not boasting in a sort of prideful way, but in a, he's sort of spreading the, the good news about them so people can give thanks to God. That, when Paul says boast, 
That's really what he means. And he's also making a subtle little point here. So I'd be very surprised if the Thessalonians weren't saying, why? Why, God, when we're being so faithful, are all these difficult things happening? Why aren't things easier? Where, what are you doing? The answer isn't one we necessarily always want to hear, but it's one that Paul was willing to boast about. God was using those persecutions and trials to grow those Christians in perseverance and faith and love. It doesn't excuse those things from happening, but it shows how God uses even difficult and challenging persecutions and trials to grow his people. So friends, let's grow. That's the first of three G's this morning. The second is glory. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote this, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's not that Paul was minimizing how hard things can be. It's, it's, it's more that he's trying to help us see things from God's perspective. That's what he does in the next section of this morning's passage. That first picture on the left there, sorry if you're on Zoom because you won't be able to see this, but uh, on the left-hand side, we have a really zoomed-in picture of the little seeds from a pepper, and then on the right-hand side, the zoomed-out picture where you can see the whole of the pepper. We need to zoom out to see the full picture, and that's a little bit like what Paul is doing in this next bit of the passage. See, first, Paul helps them see that facing their persecutions and trials doesn't mean all the Jesus stuff is wrong. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He says in verse 5, all this is evidence, evidence of God at work. The fact that they're suffering is evidence that they're becoming like Jesus. Because becoming like Jesus means to suffer, because Jesus suffered. And the way that they're suffering, with perseverance and faith, shows that God is at work within them. Second, Paul helps them see things from God's perspective. You see that sort of the big picture of time. Hold on to the truth, he says, that God is just, verse 6. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. God's perfect justice will be done. He will have the final word. And he will put right every wrong and give his people rest at last. That is why Paul can say that these momentary troubles are nothing compared to the future glory. Bear in mind, when Paul was talking about momentary troubles, he was regularly stoned, put in prison, left for dead, betrayed, and more and worse. These momentary troubles. Third, this isn't necessarily going to happen soon. Paul is fully zoomed out now. He's talking about the end of days, the day of the Lord, the final moment of judgment, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Think of Moses encountering God in the burning bush or God leading his people from a blazing pillar of fire through the desert. Blazing fire is a symbol in the Bible of God's presence and God's power and God's purity. It will happen, but... Possibly not for quite a long time. I mean, it might happen before the end of this sermon. You may well be blessed. The full picture, come Lord Jesus, I hear you all say. 
The full picture of persecutions and trials is one, they provide evidence of God at work in his people. Two, they are not the final word, God's justice will come. And three, they will be with us for a while until Jesus returns. And then we hit verses 8 and 9. Verses that make most of us start to squirm, probably. And if they don't, they probably should. The simple fact is that in a moral universe that God has created, that is supposed to be good, sin cannot go unpunished. But it isn't a vindictive thing. God is not some sort of petulant brat. He is holy and he is just. That word punish in verse 8 and again in verse 9 It's a judicial word. It's about a sentence for a crime, giving someone what they deserve. It is proportional and it is deserved. There are consequences for those who ignore the way God reveals himself to us in creation and through scripture. There are consequences for those who do listen, but verse 8, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. For Paul, the ultimate tragedy is being shut out from the presence of God. Like Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden, away from God's presence, away from his life, away from his provision. The penalty for those who turn away and reject God is to be given what they want. Life without God. And because life comes from God, that's not a good place to be. It is the ultimate tragedy. And it is one thing that should drive us to mission. Because we love them and we want them to have life. What that will look like and how it will happen, Paul doesn't speculate. He doesn't give any more details than those two verses. So we shouldn't be speculating either on exactly what that looks like, exactly how it will happen. One mistake when talking about God's punishment, and this is sort of pointing towards things like hell, is to spend too much time on it. Some preachers perhaps revel a little too much in the sort of fire and brimstone and the joy of telling people they're going to hell. But the other mistake is the opposite, to pretend it's not real, to pretend that there is no consequence for rebelling against God, for turning away from him. There is, and that is why God sent Jesus, so that in him we can be forgiven and have life and welcomed home. So the right way to think about this punishment is actually where Paul goes next, this day of the Lord. That is part of it, but actually his main point is from verse 10, that God's holy people, those who have believed, there is not punishment but glory. Paul says in verse 10 that Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. That is quite astonishing. Because the in his holy people bit, that's us. So on that day, Jesus will be glorified in us, in the, in the worldwide church, which doesn't always look that glorious to me. But that's what Paul says. Because God's people, God's children, are called to be like mirrors. 
we're called to be like mirrors, reflecting Jesus or becoming more like him. So becoming who we are, it's not about self-expression, it's about Jesus' reflection. That's what Paul's getting at here. So that when Jesus is revealed, it's obvious because they've seen us. The world has seen us and we reflect Jesus. And that is how we glorify him today, by becoming like him more and more, even in our sufferings. So that's our first two G's this morning, grow and glory. The third is grace, and this is where we'll come into land. Does all this growing in faith, in love, in endurance and perseverance, does it happen by our hard work or by God working within us? The answer is yes. (laughs) Back in verse 5, Paul says, As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. And then he picks that up in verse 11, that God may make you worthy of his calling and by his power may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed. Ultimately, all this is something God does by his power. Verse 11, our part is to join in with what he is doing within us. Working hard, making every effort, because it's a virtuous circle. God is working within us, And we are working out what he gives us. It's both together, all the time. He transforms us from the inside out. On the day we become a Christian, we usually call that conversion, don't we? We're converted to be a Christian, born again, um, whatever word you want to use to describe it. But that happens every single day as we are transformed and renewed to be more like Jesus from the inside out. So that in that verse, Paul talks about bringing to fruition your every desire that's within and your every deed that's without. God is transforming every single bit of us to be more like Jesus. And that is a very good thing. It can be hugely costly and hugely painful, that process of transformation, where we have to let go of things that perhaps we rather like in ourselves. Or let go of things that are difficult to let go of. But ultimately, that is how we reflect the glory of Jesus. We can't do it in our own strength. We can never be good enough to make ourselves worthy, but God does that. He makes us worthy. There's a wonderful hymn. My song is Love Unknown. And uh, it ends, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. We are lovely as God loves us and because God loves us. Not within ourselves, but from him. It is a wonderful gift. So suffering in faith then means God's people grow. It ends in God's glory. And it is only possible through God's grace. Those persecutions and trials are the soil in which God grows faith and perseverance in his people. One day, God will right every wrong. He will bring his perfect justice. He will give his people rest, and all will see his glory. And God gives us grace to help us live out the life that he gives so we can reflect Jesus more fully day by day. I'm going to use the final two verses of this passage as a prayer for all of us. So let us pray. With all this in mind, 
I constantly pray for us that our God may make us worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition our every desire for goodness and our every deed prompted by faith. I pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.